You're listening to Afraid Not Podcast with Jill McCormick and Robin Wall. We believe that our stories matter and make us who we are. Every other week, we invite guests to join us and share their stories. Even though our stories have not, we are not afraid. Our stories are afraid they are not perfect. We believe the truth of our mess makes us stronger. We hope that God uses these stories to encourage and strengthen your faith as you trust in Him. Our theme verse is Colossians 1:17, which says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, even our frayed knots. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Jill McCormick. And I'm Robin Wall. And this is Afraid Not Podcast. Welcome to episode number 116 with the fantastic Dr. Barbara Sorrells. You all are going to be so amazed with this wonderful conversation today. Jill and I took pages and pages of notes, both of us. She is a lifelong learner. She is a former professor. She is an author. She's a speaker. She's a writer. She's a blogger. She is a teacher of adults and of children. She is passionate about making a difference in children's lives and helping them overcome things that have been trauma. If you are in education, you have probably heard of, maybe been to her seminars. Um, she's I know she's been in Owasso and spoken a lot there. So um, if you're in the education world, you've most likely heard her name at least. She also shares her personal story of the trauma she and her husband experienced. And when they when it happened, they weren't even husband and wife yet. But she shares about how a tragic accident shaped her, the trajectory of her life and the trajectory of her husband's life. Um, this is absolutely fascinating. I recommend uh, pen and paper <laughs> when you listen to this and maybe listening to it multiple times. So everybody, you're going to love this one. Listen in. Hi, Dr. Sorrells. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm looking forward to this. We are looking forward to this too. We have been waiting anxiously for this day. And we are so glad that you said yes to coming on Afraid Not. We'd like to start us off today with just an introduction time. Just tell us a little bit about you and let our listeners know a peek into who you are and your family and like what you do? Well, first of all, I'm a wife and, and a mom uh, to two uh, girls who are now grown and have, uh, well, one of them has a family of her own and, and I have two grandchildren, a boy and a girl that are the joy of my life. And um, at this point in my life, I do a lot of different things. I write books and training guides and do a lot of teaching and um, helping teachers and consulting on, on children of trauma. Which is actually how we found out about you. I got to attend your session that you led for our Owasso public schools teachers. And it was so informative and helpful for me as a teacher, learning about how to best understand and help students who've been through trauma. So we, Jill and I talked and said, we really hope we can. Yeah. Get- <laughs> I've been to a couple, I've been to a couple of your seminars, so they're very helpful. Well, thank you. Well, with our 
our title of our podcast, Afraid Not, we have the idea that coming from Colossians 1, 17, in him, all things hold together. He's before all things and in, in, in him, all things hold together. Even the things that we look back and we just think, oh, I was just hanging by a thread. <laughs> and I've even said that this week, I've been hanging by a thread. Um, so we would really like to hear the story. And I know you briefly referred to it the day I got to hear you speak, but you um, and your husband walked through a time that was really, really life-changing and changed the rest of your lives forever. And we would just like to let you tell that story to us, to our listeners, and share about how your faith has sustained you through such a long trial, a long suffering. And um, please just begin wherever you would like to begin, and we're all ears. Sure. Well, I I grew up in Washington, D.C., and uh, as as a teenager, I used to go to D.C. General Hospital to rock abandoned babies. Um, there was a room at this place where they brought babies who were found on doorsteps, left in city parks. Um, the D.C. jail was across the street. And so they brought babies who were born in jail into the hospital. And it was one of my favorite things to do. But I also realized that there was something very different about these babies in that you never heard a baby laugh. You never heard a baby cry. It was the most eerily silent place on earth. And I think that's one of the reasons why I ended up going into early childhood is because I am their perpetual four-year-old that always wants to know why. Uh, I got that they didn't have moms, but I thought, how could they be so different in such a short amount of time? Because they only stayed there until they were about eight or nine months old, and then they went to an orphanage. And so little did I know that Mary Ainsworth was in her laboratory at that time researching attachment. And so now we have decades of information to know why these babies were so different. And they are, they were what we would call silent weeper. Um, You you only have to not respond to a baby for 45 days and they'll never cry again. Babies who are very rarely um, responded to and get their needs met eventually just shut down. So that kind of piqued my interest in the whole realm of, of child development um, you know, Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty was in its heyday. This was in the 60s. Um, so it was very interesting being a teenager in the 60s in D.C. Um, and so I was very involved in inner city work all through high school, all through college, and um, and just realized that uh, I saw a whole different side of life that many people Um, never get to see, you know, worked with children who lived in abject poverty, Um, ended up going to the University of Maryland and got a degree in early childhood. And um, when I graduated, I ended up getting a job in a community center, was a faith-based community center um, that had lots of programs. And and this um, community center is actually um, was located in what still is one of the most violent pockets in our nation. Um, these little kids, these four-year-olds had seen more violence in their four short years than many of us will ever see in a lifetime. And so I realized very quickly that I didn't have any tools. I didn't. I was not prepared um, to deal with many of the behavior challenges that I saw, the learning challenges, just the life situation. Um and so it was it was definitely uh, an awakening 
Um, but I really felt like that this was what God had called me to do. I mean, I felt that teaching was my calling. It wasn't just a job. Um, so fast forward a few more years. And, and so this is the late 70s, early 80s. And um, all of a sudden, children are showing up in classrooms with the bottle, the bottle of Ritalin. And as teachers do, I, I began to notice a pattern because I believe that when you can identify the pattern of behavior, then it gives you some clues in terms of how to deal with it. And so I learned to ask three questions when I saw the bottle of Ritalin. The first question was, has this child been through a divorce? And probably about 90% of the time, um, that child had experienced a divorce. If there was a no to that question, the second question I ask is, has this child been in the foster system or has this child been adopted? And about 5%, the answer to that question was yes. I didn't understand it. I didn't quite get how, how and why that, that seemed to have some kind of correlation. And then the third question I ask, you know, has this child seen trauma? Uh, so, for example, I was teaching first grade at the time, and I had this little guy who was suicidal at six years old. And when I was talking to mom, she said that when dad got mad, uh, he fired guns into the ceiling. He was a policeman and said, obviously, there were guns around the house. And I said, you're telling me you have bullet holes in your ceiling? And she said, yeah, pretty much. So that's trauma. Well, in the meantime, I had experienced trauma in that um, actually, at the time, um, we were we were had just dated um, off and on for a really long time. Um, uh, and my my boyfriend had gone to Africa um, as a missionary, and he was there for just a week and was involved in a terrible car accident. Um, and it killed everybody except him, and it broke his neck. And so uh, he, came back from Africa as a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. And so it, it wasn't just about his experience, but he was in the hospital for 16 months after that. Um, but it was all of a sudden, once again, I was in the midst of a world that I had never experienced before. I was surrounded by people whose lives had changed in an instant. And, um, you know, and I think one of the questions that um, was was really in my mind at the time, does having a relationship with Jesus really make a difference? Because I realized that everybody fell apart. You know, everybody was struggling. Um, but one of the things that the conclusion that I did come to is, is what I saw was that for the most part, um, people who had had a, a strong faith eventually were able to overcome. They had a hope um, that the other folks didn't have. And um, it, it uh, came to the, the conclusion that yes, indeed, um, faith was a huge factor in a person's ability to overcome. So um, we ended up getting married four years after his accident. And, you know, that was a very, uh, it, it was a very challenging decision to make, knowing that what you're signing up for, although I don't think you ever know what you're signing up for. Um, 
but I, I would say that um, the first seven years after his accident were extremely difficult. Um, you know, it was all the why me questions and why him and why us. Um, but finally, I came to the point where I realized, why not? Why not us? And I think that's really when um, the healing began. <clears throat> and um, I really believe that there was something that God wanted to accomplish in our lives. Um, that for whatever reason in his sovereignty, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't for Bob to be healed. And I've come to realize that the greater miracle, I think, is to take someone who was profoundly independent, um, very self-sufficient, and cause him to be content in a wheelchair. Um, to me, that's the greater miracle than if God had just spoken i mean i believe that god could just speak the word and he could get up even tomorrow he could still even though he's been in the chair 43 years i still believe that god could heal him but um he has chosen not to and so our focus began um became so now what now what are we going to do with our lives and how are we going to respond to this in a way that brings um glory to god and um, so, like I said, I always felt like working with children, being a teacher was my calling. Um, that has morphed into many different, um, uh, what, what I'm going to say, morphed into very different jobs, different aspects of the profession. Um, I started uh, an early childhood center in Washington, D.C. and in Fort Worth, Texas, where we lived for a while. Um, and then we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1994. And I had always wanted to go back to uh, college, get my doctorate and teach on the university level. So my excuse was always that I couldn't afford to do that. Um, you know, that I couldn't afford to quit my job and, and, and go to school. Um, because I knew that taking care of a quadriplegic husband, by then we had uh, two children, but I couldn't do all that and still work and go to school full time. So um, I, once again, I just really felt like God had um, called me to do that and laid it on my heart to do it. So I took the plunge and that step of faith and um, quit my job and um, enrolled at OSU in their grad program and just trusting that God was somehow gonna provide. Well, interestingly enough, at the end of the first semester, I got this letter in the mail that said, you don't ever have to pay tuition anymore. Wow. <laughs> I didn't, I, I didn't even know they gave scholarships to people at the doctoral level. I didn't apply for anything. To this day, I have no idea how I got that money. Wow. I have no idea who was behind it, how it happened, um, but I definitely I, a God thing. <laughs> it was definitely confirmation that you were doing the right thing, right? Sorrels, so, at this time, how many years had you been married when you were pursuing the doctorate? Let me think. Yeah, it was fourteen years. So anyway, um, again, so I, I did my doctoral program, loved it you know, had a fabulous experience. Um, and then of course, when graduation came, I was, um, 
a little apprehensive because typically universities don't hire their own grad students. Um, they like to um, have a variety of different research platforms and typically they don't hire their own. So, so anyway, I was kind of asking the Lord, you know, what's the next thing? What's the next step? You know, for us to move anywhere would be very challenging with my husband's needs and, you know, all the medical things that go into that. So anyway, I graduated and I get another letter in the mail um, that says, we would like for you to apply for this faculty position in the early childhood department. And I thought, no, they're kidding. They don't hire their own. <laughs> I think they got me mixed up with somebody. So I left the letter lay on my desk for three months. And I thought, no, they can't be serious. So finally, I thought, well, it'll be a good experience in practicing how to interview for a position because I, I had heard that interviewing for a job in academia was pretty brutal. And so I thought, well, I'll give it a, a whirl just for the practice. So I called them and I said, you do know that I graduated from this university. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we know that. And I said, so you really do want me to apply if it's still available? And they said, yes, it is available. And yes, we do want you to apply. So I went for the two-day interview. And at the end of the second day, I had a job. <laughs> so wow. I taught on the faculty at Oklahoma State University. Um, and I left in 2007. Um, and at that time, time, it was once again um, feeling that and believing that there was another chapter that God was calling me to. Um, because in 1998, I met a man by the name of Dr. Bruce Perry. Um, he is the international guru of trauma. I actually went to a conference in, um, it was in Toronto, Canada. And walked into a very large room and he was presenting uh, his research on the impact of trauma on the brain. And I just sat there that day completely fascinated because after my experience and seeing the experiences of children and noticing a pattern, um, you know, when I realized that there was some kind of connection between divorce between being in the foster system and experiencing trauma, there was loss involved. And it all of a sudden hit me one day that, you know, after my husband's experience, because there was a period of time when I felt like I had this restless energy, you know, I was, I was grieving, you know, the law, his loss, you know, my loss, I was grieving the loss of this, um, what do I want to say, this um, naive view of the world yeah. <laughs> I once held. And, you know, I mean, really, it was a shaking of the foundations of my faith. And it was kind of like starting all over and putting the pieces back together. And, and it hit me one day that what I was experiencing was also loss. And I got on this trail of thinking that somehow loss changes us at the very cellular level you know and so this is in uh the 1980s and no one was writing no about, one was that talking about it yeah at that time i kept looking and digging and reading and could find no answers and dr sorrels i wanted to can i interrupt for a second and just ask you with the decision you made that yes i want to marry this man 
and knowing that this is a situation he may never be healed from and this is what we're going to do at the beginning did you just take care of him and do nothing else or did you always take care of him while you were also doing your job or your work or school I, I was always working I always did something yeah being a quadriplegic is incredibly expensive <laughs> And, you know, there was no big settlement, you know, there wasn't any, you know, uh, money waiting in the wings for us. Um, and, and so, yeah, I've, I've always worked um, mm -hmm. as I've um, throughout our marriage. And um, again, I really think that having a purpose was really one of the things that helped sustain me because otherwise it would be very easy to sit around and in a sense, navel gaze at your own, you know, your own pathetic life, you know, um, in terms of, you know, why me, why was me? But I, I truly believe that um, God calls us to minister out of our own challenges and struggle. You know, he uses broken people. Um, and, and so that was always, um, I've, I've always been very thankful that I get up every morning and do a job that I love. Mm -hmm. I'm almost 70 years old. Um, and I feel very grateful and very blessed to have that blessing in my life. I love what I do and I'm, I'm so thankful God called me to this. Mm -hmm. So going back when you're talking about loss in mm -hmm. general, that can be a loss of anything, right? Like the, like you said, the loss of innocence, the loss of a parent, the loss of what you thought would ha be happening in your life. Is that correct? Right, right. And, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about trauma. And, and as we do in education, sometimes we get on bandwagons and um, I, I think that to some degree, trauma may be coming that, but there's a difference between trauma and severe stress. And I think a lot of people call um, severe stress trauma when it really isn't. And we trivialize trauma when we attribute things that are just stressful. And the difference is that trauma changes your view of the world very much my view of the world changed after Bob's accident. Um, trauma also changes your view of yourself. Um, you know, we, I went through a period of time where I felt like I wasn't worthy of God blessing me with, you know, Bob's healing. Um, there's a lot of backstory to his accident and the organization that he was with. I felt in a sense, we were abandoned by the organization, um, that he went with to Africa. And it, there was this profound sense of worthlessness that I experienced. I remember, I remember talking to a counselor after several years, finally broke down, went to a counselor, highly recommended to anyone. <laughs> um, and I remember telling her that I, I felt like that our lives were not worth salvaging to anyone. And um, 
And so trauma does change your view of yourself. Trauma um, causes you to develop um, usually unhealthy coping mechanisms and that can eventually um, turn into addictions. Now, when I look back on it and, and I don't know, maybe other people would, would disagree. I don't, I don't, other than maybe anger and bitterness, that can become a bad habit. I was, I became very angry and bitter for a period of time. Um, and then also something that's truly trauma versus se severe stress compromises your ability to feel joy and gratitude. And that very much did for me. So, um, so I would say that, yes, um, our experience was truly traumatic, but trauma can be take any form, as you said. Um, and what might be traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for another. And so, for example, I had brain surgery and open heart surgery two years ago. I had brain surgery, then three months later, I had open heart surgery. Oh, my goodness. And people will say to me, well, that must have been really traumatic. And I would say, no, that that wasn't traumatic. It was stressful because it didn't change my view of the world. It didn't change my view of myself. It, I, don't, I didn't develop um, unhealthy coping mechanisms. And if anything, it made me more grateful and more able to experience joy and gratitude just because of God's faithfulness through that whole situation. And it was during COVID and I was mostly alone during those, those, uh, that time. And so, uh, it, it was stressful, but not traumatic. Whereas the first experience was very traumatic. Wow. That's the best description of that I've ever heard. Cause I work in an alternative high school. So I, I mean, all of my kids have had some sort of trauma usually, but, um, but that's a great description of sometimes we think we, we, I mean, that word trauma is thrown around. You're right. Everywhere all the time. And there is real trauma. Yes. And then there's stress. Right. Right. So yeah. And there's a huge difference. And like I said, I think we trivialize it when we start pointing at everything that has a little bit of stress over, oh, that's traumatic. No, it's not. <laughs> right. So when the, when the, played the company that he was with or the missionaries he was with in Africa when you felt abandoned is it what, what did they partly feel responsible and that's why they kind of backed up or is that something you can talk about um there was a lot of controversy about how they should respond to it okay. um and um there were a lot of things untruthful things said and published at that time. Um, it, it was a very, very painful experience, very painful. Um, but the thing that I see is, is God was, has been profoundly faithful. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, I, don't, I wouldn't have been able to handle everything that's come our way. Um, but I very much, believe in the so sovereignty of God and God doesn't give dying grace on an undying day. Um, he gives grace for that day and what comes your way for that day. So how did you meet, how did you meet your husband? Um, actually he went to the university of Oklahoma and after graduation, he came to Washington DC to work for a savings and loan. 
and the savings and at well at that savings and loan there happened to be a lady who went to our church and at the time we had a huge um young adult uh, crowd in our church i mean it was six blocks from the united states capitol so there's always this influx of young people fresh out of college who come to dc to work um so it, they had quite a ministry to that so i met him at church she invited him to come to church and so um i i met him at church and um so actually by the time we got married we had known each other um for 10 years <laughs> and um so we had a long off and on courtship um until it was finally um finally happened so yes can we go to the story where you were starting to realize as you wisely went to a counselor that you were really seeing i i had felt worthless and then through the process then you were beginning to see wow this loss and how it's changed my life it kind of led you into wanting to study that right let's talk about that um yes well, i think i've always i've always been interested in what makes kids do what they do i've always been fascinated by child development and um and so my first experiences and like i said growing up in dc and um being very involved in inner city work you know i'm <laughs> some of the stories i look back on are um are hilariously funny but um you know i encountered children whose lives were so very different so for example um all through high school and college we had this saturday morning bible club for uh, children and um, never forget one Saturday afternoon these the, this these twins showed up. They were fifth graders and they had on trench coats in August, and that should have been our first clue that something was amiss. And as soon as our club was over, everybody looks around and you know this is back in the day of tape recorders, you know, and didn't have a lot of technology. That was about as sophisticated as it was, but watches and wallets were missing. And we went, that's why they had their trench coats. <laughs> so I went and grabbed one of the pastors and I said, I know where these guys live. <laughs> So we go over to their house and knock on the door and um, their grandmother comes to the door and they said, yeah, they came running in here and changed clothes real quick and left. Well, we finally caught up with these, these two kids, uh, 11 year olds. They ran us all over DC all afternoon. They would say, meet us on this corner at this time, we'll have your stuff. And we'd show up and they wouldn't be there. <laughs> we'd drive around and be fine with you. So, you know, that was a very different world than I grew up in, in my neighborhood. Um, so I was just always very fascinated um, by what drives behavior. And then, of course, my very first job working at the community center with four-year-olds, you know, um, I had four-year-olds cussing me out and um, four-year-olds chucking paint jars across the room and throwing blocks and one child one day hit me between the eyes with a block and, you know, and, and I, I realized I had no tools. I had no tools to uh, um, manage, to know how to truly help them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the kind of 
behaviors that I saw and and in my heart even then I thought this this isn't because they're quote quote bad children but I didn't understand it I didn't believe any child was born bad um but I I just really and truly wanted to help them so I did a lot of training and child development to courses with the Gazelle Institute of Child Study um, and just constantly read, constantly read, looking for answers. And of course, with the experience, as you know, as teachers, over the years, you accumulate some wisdom and some experience. But it was really when I met Dr. Perry that, and, and I was teaching the classroom guidance and management class at OSU. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to learn more and understand more about behavior, um, because that was the pressing question when we went to supervise student teachers. Um, is what do we do about the children who are just out of control? And as the decades have gone by, we see more and more children who are struggling. You know, back in 1975, when I first graduated, if I had been in a typical setting, which I wasn't, you would see just a handful of kids who might be struggling. But now you see it's a handful of kids who are not. And it, it's a completely different scene, a completely different classroom than it used to be. And so I got the training just to help teachers to be able, when I went out to supervise, to have more answers, to have more techniques, to have more understanding. Um, but what happened was um, someone one time, one night asked me if I would come over and do a class for foster parents. And um, so I agreed to, she said, don't you know a little bit about trauma? And I said, I said, yeah, I, I do. So I showed up at this church and there were 25 foster parents there. It was the hungriest audience I have ever met because foster parents hit a wall very quickly. Um, they realize that they need more very quickly. Whereas typical parents usually don't hit that wall until much later in their child's development. Um, and I was just blown away by, it was just like, tell me more, tell me more. Well, that one night turned into 10 nights. And then at the time I happened to be going to a church that I was very large church um, that was committed to finding 150 families in the church to um, foster children. And so that was a noble goal, but I also had concerns because um you need to know some things before you bring a traumatized child into your home. And I was afraid that in like zeal and, you know, the surely who doesn't want to bring a foster child into your home and help a child. Um, so I actually went to some of the staff and just said, Hey, you know, here's my concerns. And well, anyway, they ended up hiring me on a, uh, as a part-time staff person um, to work with a foster care ministry and so we just put out um, uh, an advertisement on Facebook. Hey, we're doing this class for foster parents and 87 people showed up. Wow. And it just kind of um, kind of exploded and uh, more and more people started asking um, for the training and different agencies. And, and so then I just felt like the next step was to leave OSU where I could focus full-time um, on the trauma work again just it was a leap of faith again 
Um, and interestingly enough, the, I, I resigned in January of 2007, and two months later, my husband became very ill and has never been able to work since. And so I had let go of my job, and shortly thereafter, he was not able to work. But again, once again, God has been incredibly faithful, has blown me away how he's provided. So it was just kind of... Um, you know, a walk of faith of, and just little by little different, um, you know, people called and I got, ended up getting involved in court work and um, some very heartbreaking um, trauma cases, um, started a therapeutic preschool um, because one of the challenges that foster parents often have is um, children, their children are kicked out of uh, uh, child care centers, kicked mm -hmm. out of schools, and believe it or not, asked to leave churches, Bible studies. <laughs> um, it's very heartbreaking. And so uh, that's why I started the uh, preschool kind of as an experiment. It was just, um, it's just been one classroom of children, pretty much the um, criteria. Most of the kids have been asked to leave another program. We have a few where that's not the case, but they've all been kids, um, foster children or children who have been adopted, um, have experienced significant trauma. Um, and and so um, I don't know if you know, but Owasso School District is pulling our therapeutic preschool into their district next year. Yes. Oh, that is great news. Okay, uh, yeah. I'll ask you a question while we're in a little moment here. <clears throat> a false conception, a false, is it a myth to think that if a baby is really young, that the trauma they've been through won't really affect them? No, that's the, one of the biggest myths that there is. The younger the child is, the greater the trauma. The younger the child is, the greater the trauma. the trauma and the greater potential for impact because the brain is most vulnerable in utero. Mm -hmm. And actually the trauma that the child experiences in utero can have profound impacts in that it can uh, recalibrate the regulatory system and the sensory processing system. Um, because when, when we experience stress, our cortisol levels go up. And so if a pregnant mom is living in very stressful situations or is a drug addict or what have you, um, that cortisol actually makes the placenta more permeable. And all those stress hormones, you know, just bathe that baby. And so that could even be things that are not in their control, maybe even like absolutely a hard delivery or a natural disaster or something like that. Yes, and that and that's the uh, uh, the thing too. And um, yes, a lot of it is completely out of mom's control. I mean, obviously, if I'm a drug addict, or I mean, well, I mean, theoretically, they have control, but that's another whole conversation about why they do what they do. Um, but certainly, you know, a mom that gets some kind of uh, virus in the second trimester or is in a car accident. Um, loses her job and it's facing extreme financial challenges, even, um, you know, racism, you know, regardless, you know, what ethnic, what ethnicity I am, you know, there's racist, racism at all 
level. So there are so many things that are out of their control. But the good news is, if we understand the implications, then we can um, put some buffers in place to hopefully minimize the impact. But if I don't know um, the impact and believe that, oh, they're not going to remember it, so it's not going to affect them, then I'm not going to know what to do. I'm not going to know that this baby is going to need an extra dose of nurture. Um, yeah. So, so that's why knowing and knowledge can be um, very helpful for, for all families, not just foster families and adoptive families. Right. But, yeah. So what, what kinds of buffers would you recommend? Like, or what signs would a parent maybe look for to know that maybe there's some stuff that they need to give some extra nurturing? Well, I would, I, I would certainly want to know the child's history. I would say any child that um, has had a difficult birth, any child where mom's had some kind of trauma, obvious trauma. Um, and I know that I'm going to say something that may uh, not sit well with some folks, but if at all possible, I would not put that child in a child care center. Um, because that's going to be a baby that's going to need lots and lots of one-on-one -on -one, um that nurturing attention, that responsive care and rhythm. Interestingly enough, our brains organize around rhythm. Um, and in particular, the brain stem, the brain stem develops in utero and in the first two months of life. And so if that baby has had some kind of compromise, um, been born prematurely, experienced trauma, um, you can pretty much assume that there's gonna be some degree of disorganization in that baby's brain. And so lots and lots of rhythm. I would glue that baby um, to my body in a sling or a moby and sing and rock and um, just all kinds of movement. As mom moves, the baby gets that movement, um, just lots of touch. I would get trained in infant massage um, and do the infant massage on a regular basis with that baby. Um, I would be very responsive to that baby's needs. Um, I would work very hard to help that baby um, go into that calm state of alertness, you know, and, and I don't know if you um, may remember um, back in the early days, I, I always call this, it was almost like a sacred moment. That moment when that baby, who's even only a few weeks old, it's like this hush comes over them and they're alert. And their eyes are just darting all around and you can tell that they're just taking it all in. You know, we, we work to help that baby learn to calm, to learn to soothe um, because babies learn to regulate by being regulated. They need a bigger, stronger other. So when you think about that baby who has trauma, their central nervous system has been recalibrated. They need lots of soothing. They need lots of tender loving care. Um, and so um, that's why I say, if at all possible, um, to stay home with that baby, that first year of life. And I realize that many people can't do that. Um, so the next best thing is to find a caregiver um, who is truly nurturing. You know, at that stage, it's not about academics. Um, it's, it's about a very responsive, nurturing caregiver. Since the pandemic, are you noticing an explosion of all of this? Cause I'm just thinking in the schools, we're noticing 
a huge difference. Yes. I, I hear that everywhere I go, that, that the aggression is more and more severe and the dysregulation is more severe. Yes. Since the pandemic, the world changed for children, the world changed for families. Um, I think part of it is that for many families, well, and especially those whose school districts were completely shut down, you know, some of them had, um, were completely shut down. Some had choices where you could do virtual or you could come in person. Um, and then some were open pretty much the whole time. Um, but for those that were completely shut down, um, there are many different scenarios. For one, there were for some parents, they had never been home with their child for that long of a period of time since that child was born. And I have no idea what to do with you. <laughs> and so I think a lot of kids were parked on screens. The screen became the babysitter. Um, we heard stories about mom and dad having to still go to work and they didn't have anyone to watch their kids. So the eight-year-old sibling is taking care of the four-year-old and the two-year-old and the baby while mom works. We heard stories of kids being locked in rooms um, because mom and dad had to go to work, didn't have anybody to watch you. I need to make sure you're safe. And so I lock you in a room. So I think there were a lot of dynamics that played into it, plus just the uncertainty. Um, and I think part of the stress of COVID is that the experience was so very different for every child and every family. For some, it was catastrophic. Mm -hmm. uh, family members died, got seriously ill, parents lost jobs, there was food scarcity, there was um, some lost their housing. And for many children, school is their oasis, is their safe place, right? So their food. And that was suddenly taken away. Um, so yes, all of that plays into aggression because aggression is a language of fear. When you see an aggressive child, you're looking at a fearful child. Mm. That's pretty powerful. And when you talked about doctor, going back to Dr. Bruce Perry, he's, he actually wrote the, what happened to you? Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. That's an excellent book. Yeah. Yes. Love that. And I got to go to Canada and um, become certified in the neurosequential model of therapeutics and education. So he has had a profound impact on my view of children uh, and how to deal with trauma. Um, another lady that had a huge impact was Dr. Karen Purvis out of Texas Christian University. Uh, she researched the neurochemistry of fear for 12 years and pioneered a process called trust-based relational intervention. And um, my daughter actually went to TCU. So I um, had the opportunity to meet her, go to her training a lot, went to a lot, went to TCU a lot, went, attended her camp that she did for trauma kids. So she also had a huge, huge impact on um, my understanding of trauma and how to help children. I would like to ask you, I, I think it's a challenging question because you could literally talk to us every day for, you know, several hours a day for a semester. <laughs> you have that, that much to share. And here we are, this little podcast. But my question is, a lot of people listening are involved in their churches 
And maybe they are volunteers in the kids ministry, they're volunteers in the youth group, or they maybe they rock babies in the nursery. And more and more, we are seeing that exactly what you're talking about in our schools is in our churches too. So what would you like to tell us? How can we have our the best possible approach for students that are coming to us in our churches and they need this extra nurturing and they're showing aggression, inappropriate behavior, language, et cetera. What do we do? Can you give us, I know that it's impossible for you to tell us everything, but what would be some just little wise tips to help us today? I think, I think a lot of it goes back to how people view children and how they view behavior. Um, I believe that children do well when they can. Um, I believe that children have this innate desire to please those who love and care for them. So it's all about relationships, which really I think is a reflection of our relationship with God himself. We were designed for connection and designed for relationship. And the more connected I feel to the Lord, the more I want to live a life that pleases him. And I believe that that same drive is within our children. There is this internal drive to connect. There is this internal drive to please those um, who love and care for me. And um, I don't believe children lay awake at night thinking about how to get on our less nerves. Um, so I do believe that children do well when they can. I believe that all behavior carries meaning. And when that child comes to church, when that child comes to school, regardless of the age, they act out what they don't have the words to say. And learning to interpret children's behavior um, and understand what's driving it gives me insight in how to respond versus reacting. And, um, and coming alongside that child, because I believe that the whole word discipline the root of that is disciple and Jesus was indeed the greatest discipler of men that there was. And when we're disciplining our children, basically we are discipling them, which means what I say to you is come, let me show you how, come alongside me and let me show you how versus bam, I'm going to punish you. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great descriptor. Wow. Yeah. Can you give us, uh, Dr. Soros, can you give us uh, an example in uh, like a simple uh, behavior that you would see so often? I'm sure we've all seen a lot of bad behaviors and just maybe a possible insight into what you meant when you said they act out what they don't know how to say and maybe something you've learned in dealing with that. I, I would say one of the um, most powerful strategies is what we call the do-over. Um, you know, years ago, I called it the rewind back in the days of eight millimeter film, but nobody knows what that is anymore. <laughs> um, but the do-over, so for example, um, there were these four little boys screaming in the hallway. Actually, our, our therapeutic preschool was in a church. Um, they came screaming down the hallway one day and um, my first level engagement with them is going to be playful. It's not, you know, you boys know better than this, you know, stop running in the hallway. 
um, I said, oh my goodness, you sound like a herd of elephants. Let's try that again. And so that's the do-over. A child, you know, kids are sitting at the table coloring um, with each other and somebody grabs the crayons out of somebody's hands and, you know, tiff breaks out and it's like, let's try that again with respect. This is what you say. This is what you do. Um, you, you know, even a teenager, you know, may mouth off. Hmm. Hey buddy, would you like to try that one more time? Let's try that again. Let's try it again with respect, you know, versus immediately coming at them with power and control. Um, and so learning some, some simple strategies like that, um, cause I've heard some very sad stories. Um, I, re I remember, um, actually Dr. Karen Purvis telling the story about a little boy who went to Sunday school and he had profound, profound trauma and it was mother's day and he, and they were making cards for their mothers and, you know, his experience with mom's was not positive. He was in a foster home, but had just gotten there. So, you know, the trust hadn't been developed and he didn't want to make the card. And they insisted that he make the card and, you know, he exploded. You know, he didn't know how to tell them. I don't have the words as a seven-year-old mm -hmm. to tell you what's in my heart and everything that's going on within me. And um, they came and, and took the child to the psychiatric center. Wow. And it's very heartbreaking. I mean, uh, and, and it's very common with foster parents. I know many foster parents who've been asked to not come back um, to the church nursery or what have you because of their behavior, because people just don't understand. Mm -hmm. They don't understand. And so I think that having trauma informed and trauma responsive congregations is very important. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, I haven't done a lot of work. I've done a little bit of work with churches, but um, would like to do more. Well, it just is truly, um, it makes me so sad to think that a family who is coming, seeking a place to worship, a place to connect with other believers, a place to make friends and to do life together, instead of being received and helped, mm -hmm. that they would be turned away. And it would break my heart if that happened at my church. Yeah. Where you and I go, where our church, we would never want that to happen. But how do we know it hasn't happened? You know, yeah. we do need to be better trained and equipped and helped to know what to do. And I just, um, I look back at uh, just over the years, how even children's ministry has changed um and i and actually i have been a children's pastor for um a short time but i i understand the challenge that there is to get faithful um sunday school teachers bible study leaders for children of all ages um but we're in this this mode where so many of the churches you walk in and you you flip a switch to turn on a dvd or such and it's about relationships the relational aspect cannot be ignored. Um, and I am so grateful for my Sunday school teachers. I feel like that I inherited an incredible legacy of faith. 
um, through faithful Sunday school teachers who went the extra mile, who visited us in our house, who took us on special trips, invited us into their homes for Sunday dinner. Um, that's what it takes. That's what mm -hmm. it takes is building those relationships. This means I've got to invest time outside of Sunday morning if I'm really going to help children and families establish um, yeah. supportive relationships. Can we talk a little bit um, about ACEs and what that is? Sure. Um, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study actually started out as a study on morbid obesity. And um, Kaiser Permanente in San Diego, under the leadership of Dr. Vincent Felides, opened a wellness uh, clinic. And as part of that, they were um, working with people who um, were diagnosed with morbid obesity, which means that they were more than 100 pounds overweight. And so they were working with these folks and they are all becoming successful, losing weight, feeling better. And then um, as the study went on, there was a certain percentage uh, and, and they said it was many of their most successful patients dropped out and went back to their unhealthy ways of living, gained the weight back. And they're all scratching their heads like, why would they do this? So they looked at medical history and did not find any commonalities. So they started doing interviews of emotional history, family history. And that's what completely turned the study around into a study on trauma. Um, because in this first wave, in this first round of interviews, they found that about half of these women, the women that dropped out had been sexually abused uh, in the first 18 years of life. And they began to realize that the weight was actually a coping mechanism because in their mind, if I make myself less attractive as they would perceive it, then people are less likely to abuse me, to notice me. Um, and so as they began to delve into the history of these people, that's how the 10 ACE factors came into being. They found that 98% of the people had either physical or emotional abuse, physical or emotional harm, sexual abuse, um, divorce, living in a home with an incarcerated parent, um, mental illness, um, drug addicted parent, uh, substance abuse and domestic violence. And those became known as the 10 ACE factors. And so when you look at those 10 things and you look at your own life, you think how many of these things did I experience in my first uh, 18 years of life? And whatever that number is, that's quote, quote, your ACE score. And your ACE score is predictive of the kinds of illnesses that you may develop later in life. Is it really just for that first 18 years or is it what if something happens after the 18 years? Well, it's more so the 18 years. Well, actually, in the original beginning study was the first five years. Now they've they kind of lengthened that to the first 18 years. And one of the and, and really, again, the earlier you experience the trauma, the greater the impact. But they're looking at that because um, that's um, 
the developing brain, the developing psyche. Okay. In the in the developmental stages, it has more of an impact than once we're kind of well, our brain is continually evolving and reorganizing until 26. Um, we've now discovered. Um, so um so yeah, so that's your A score. And you know, it's for example, if you have an A score of two or more. Uh, you are more likely to develop autoimmune diseases. And, you know, that's one of the things that we see in impoverished areas. Children of poverty have higher rates of asthma, skin rashes, type 2 diabetes. And so your A score has um, a huge impact on health, significance for health. However, it is probabilistic and not deterministic. You know, just because I have an A score of say six, you know, it predicts that you will have a shortened life by 20 years. But that doesn't mean I am doomed to have a shortened life because then the flip side of that is there are buffering factors. And what I often do in a training is we look at um, what's your A score? And people say, well, I got an A score of nine. How come I'm not crazy? How come I'm not why can I function as well as I do? Well, I say, now let's look at your protective factors. And actually, um, Jennifer Hayes Grudo and Amanda Morris out of OSU develop what's called the PACE score, the protective factors. And so I have them look at their PACE score. How many of these pro pro uh, protective factors do, did you have? And what usually happens is if I have an A score and I'm sitting in this training and I'm, you know, which usually means that you're a teacher or you're pretty functional in life, you have a high pay score, meaning I have had a lot of buffering protective factors to counteract the negative factors in my life. And okay. faith, and one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about churches um, being on board and understanding this is because uh, having a faith relationship with Jesus is the number one Protective factor. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I feel like our the faith we have in Christ can can overcome the things that cannot be overcome any other way. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, Dr. Felitti, the author of the A study, actually came to OSU several years ago and did a seminar. And I don't really know what his faith background is, but he was talking about um, the notion of being wanted and being loved and valued um, is so critical. And when I ha suffer all these A scores, all that is compromised. And, and I'm not sure exactly in what light he was saying this, but he, he made the comment. He said, hence the power of Jesus loves me, this I know. Because we all have this profound need to be wanted. Um, and, you know, we can look at people and say, Jesus wanted you so much that he died for you. Wow. Yeah. Which is a beautiful thing to consider in light of the fact that this episode is airing the day after Easter. And any listener who's listening right now, we just want you to know that's true for you. He died for you. 
He loves you. He wants you. And there could not be anything more true or life-changing than that. Absolutely. And a, and a teacher at a church, a school, whatever, could be one of those protective factors, even with just letting them see that they're wanted by them, that they're, that they approve of them as a person and all that. Absolutely. It only takes that one person somewhere along the way in that child's life that extends kindness, that shows the love of God that can, can truly turn that child's life around. And that's one of the things that grieves me is, um, it's become harder and harder to, like I said, to find those Sunday school teachers who are really committed um, and even churches who, who provide that opportunity <laughs> versus, well, let's just come in and turn on a DVD um, and we rotate people every week. You know, a different person comes in every week to punch the button and turn on the DVD player and that relationship falls by the wayside, which is really our power. Mm-hmm. Dr. Sorrells, I just can't thank you enough for this wisdom that you've shared with us. And yeah, I have like five pages of notes. <laughs> me too. Me too, Jill. I've been writing madly the whole time. Uh, and it's just honestly inspirational. First of all, I I know that you're not trying to receive a lot of praise and recognition, but I just want to say your example of loving your husband so faithfully and serving him is beautiful. It's a beautiful example of wedding vows, you know, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish in good times and bad and poverty and wealth and sickness and in health. I just thank you for your beautiful example of what it looks like to be in a marriage and serve and love each other. And to, even if God never heals your husband, to have had a beautiful marriage. That's that's a beautiful example that I needed today to see that and to be touched in my heart. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for sharing with us today. Oh, you are very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. So can we put your, a way that people could connect with your literature that you've written and maybe things that you have like a website or whatever, we'll put that in our show notes so people can find more and learn more about this important topic if they want to do that. I actually have two websites. One is theconnectedkids.org. Um, and then I have another one. And this shows how um, untechnical I am. I think it's a blog. <laughs> I think it's a WordPress site. Um, it's just Dr. Barbara. And um, I have some articles there and some more information. And I'm committed this year to um, putting more faithfully blogging um, and putting some of this in writing. And, and then, uh, the podcast that my daughter and I did is called nurturing the heart of a child and it's on iTunes. Okay. So we can look that up. That's the great thing about a podcast. They're on the World Wide web. You can check them out. <laughs> nurturing the heart of a child. Great. Awesome. Thank you again. May God bless you. And thank you for your time with us today. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. We're so glad you were here today, and we're so grateful to Dr. Sorrells for spending her time with us. 
and sharing from her wealth of knowledge and wisdom that she has studied and learned so much through her lifetime. We will put some information in the show notes as far as books she's written, Dr. Perry's book, um, things about ACES scores, her daughter's podcast, all those things. We'll, we'll make sure to mention those in the show notes. This is so much information. You may want to listen to this one through a few times because it's a lot of information that's very important. Something that I have to say is an overarching, beautiful thought that was closing the conversation today. When Dr. Sorrells mentioned how important those protective factors are and how they are really positive in changing the possible problems someone could have from difficult trauma, things they've been through, protective factors can really change the path and and kind of break that cycle. And she said the most important one, the best protective factor we can have is Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you. He died for you. He cares about you. And that is the best protective factor offered to all of us right now. You don't have to do anything to earn it. He just loves you. So for me, I'm just really just reveling in that beautiful thought today and the the joy of that, knowing that. Thanks again for listening. Um, Make sure you rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you in two weeks.